That was awesome. Be there on my vision. If you're visiting today or if you haven't been here for our preaching series in Mark, we've been in it for a year, and today we get to the apocalypse of Mark. So if you're visiting, you get to come right when the fire starts rolling in. It'll be great. We get to the apocalypse of Mark. Chapter 13 is apocalyptic. And so I want to open with maybe what would be a recent image of an apocalyptic scene as we would envision that. That word raises up a lot of different emotions and thoughts and experiences and ways that we've been taught. And I think that this text, when we really see what Jesus is doing, and it's especially helpful if you've been in the book of Mark for some time, you'll see what he's doing more clearly in chapter 13. So I want you to start by imagining with me being up in the gorge recently with the fires coming, okay? Imagine yourself stuck there in the gorge when the wildfire starts closing in on your left and on your right. You know it's behind you, and in front of you is darkness and smoke. What are you feeling? You're feeling cornered. You're feeling trapped. There's a panic that sort of comes up. Fear rips its claws into your heart and soul, and you say, oh, my goodness, it's over. How am I going to proceed? This fire is way out of control. I cannot control it. What do I do? And then what's the only thing that you can have possibly on your mind? Making it out alive. How will I survive? Getting to safety, finding rest, doing whatever it takes to get out. Just help me get out. That's what you want to do. Think about in that moment what you totally stop doing and totally stop thinking about. Pretty much everything else in life. <laughs> right? You get real singularly focused. You're not like, oh, I've got homework that I got to finish by tonight. You know, you're like, I got to survive. You don't think about like, here's the kind of person that I want to always be. You know, it's just, I got to get out of here. What do I do? I'm not going to think about other responsibilities. I'm really not going to be focused on anything at all. And I would suggest to you that in the end, all fear is rooted in the perception of losing things. All fear starts with the perception that you're going to lose something valuable and you can't control it. It's, it's just think about it. Cancer, losing a loved one, losing your job, not getting something you think you need. Any sense of fear that you have in your life is based on the perception that you will lose something valuable and it's beyond your control. And if that's true, and I think that is true, then imagine... If you're in that state of fear, just think about how powerful a voice would be if that voice came to you and promised that you could be saved from loss. I can help you not lose something valuable. I can show you that you can be in control of this. You might just believe anything that a voice like that tells you in the midst of despair and fear. I'm gonna lose everything, it's out of my control. No. You won't lose everything if you come to me. No, it's not beyond your control. I have something to offer you that it will help you. It will bring it into your control. I think you can think of such a voice as a messianic voice, a Christos voice. It's a voice that's saying 
I can help you. It emerges in the darkness of a smoky forest fire when the destruction of your life looks like it's totally inescapable. And it's this saving voice that bids you come and follow me. I'll show you a way out. I will lead you to safety. What a comfort that is and an encouragement. It's like, yes, I'm locked in. I'm going to die. But somebody, something, someone saying, come to me. And you're like, sweet, I'm going to go in that direction. And so you, but then another voice says, no, come over here. He's like, okay, I'll come over. And then the one, I'll come over here. All of a sudden, different voices are all laying claim to the same kinds of promises. Look here. Here's what can save you. You need more equipment. Look here. Here's what can save you. There's what can save you. You need more knowledge. Pay attention to the news and the information. The information will help you. You'll be able to do this. You're still in control. This one says you need this. That one says you need that. Some say you need me. What do we do? The irony is that these different competing voices that all seem to promise a way out are also driven by fear. Now, their fears are located in different ways, but we see a circular thing happening here. But then we're in Mark. This whole last year we're reading Mark, and he's showing us Jesus in the gospel, and he presents Jesus to us as a dude who's pretty fearless, we don't see kind of a whimpering, whining Jesus who's like, oh, man, this is just hard. I don't know how we're going to get... He's not like that. Jesus seems to have this sort of robust confidence inside in the midst of a really difficult world. Jesus seems to be well aware, as we're going to see in this apocalyptic text, he seems to be well aware of the destruction that's coming, and yet he's not afraid. While any other perspective might see destruction as pure loss and therefore reason to be terrified or fearful, Jesus sees it as a creative destruction. We're going to see that today. And he therefore gives an unmistakably clear instruction to you and me. He says, do not be alarmed. How interesting is that? Do not be alarmed. John, one of Mark's buddies, John will write in a different text that it is perfect love that drives out all fear. And hey, maybe John is right about that. Jesus seems to be set before us as an exemplifier of perfect love. And he doesn't seem to be afraid, even though he knows more about what's really coming down the pike than anybody else. You know? We know less about what's coming down the pike and we're terrified of it. He knows everything to a detail and he's not afraid. That's something we need to pay attention to as a church. If we don't, we're going to mistakenly read passages like the one we're going to read right now. Turn your Bibles open to Mark chapter 13. We have to really get into the heart and mind of Jesus and ask ourselves, why is he not freaking out? Because when I read this, I kind of freak out. And he's reading it to us, he's saying this to us so that we would not be alarmed. You'll see that. And right in the first couple verses as I open, pay really close attention to verses one through three, because if you don't, you'll, you'll end up missing the whole point of this text. It's very important. Okay. Mark chapter 13, verse one. Let's jump into this. 
As Jesus was leaving the temple, this is right after the long two chapters, chapter and a half, half of 11 and 12, all of 12, he's been in the temple, judging the temple, judging the system that the temple has been is working under and saying, you guys have mixed this whole thing up. You have really distorted God's will here in the holy place. And it's been intense. It's right after that scene now they're leaving. And one of his disciples says to him, Well, look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings, you know, looking back at the, at the uh, city. They were phosphorus. They were amazing, too. You, you had hundreds of 37-foot-tall pillars carved Corinthian style out of straight marble blocks, single blocks of marble, and they were as white as snow. And all around the temple, you had huge golden plates, thick plates of gold. Josephus, the ancient historian, says when you came around the bend and the light was hitting the temple, you couldn't look at it. It was gleaming white and gold. You literally had to turn away as you would have to turn away from the sun itself. What magnificent buildings, they say. This is amazing what we built here. Verse 2, Jesus says, oh yeah, you see all those great buildings? Not one stone here will be left on top of another. Everything's going to get thrown down. (laughs) What? Pause. This is about the fall of what? Jerusalem and the temple. Jesus says this. I'm going to talk to you now about the fact that what you're looking at in Jerusalem and the temple is going to crumble and be crushed. So what I say next is about that. There will be parts here that seem to speak beyond that, and we'll talk about that. But overall, these 23 verses that follow in the first part of Mark 13 are about the fall of the temple and the fall of Jerusalem, or you might say, the end of the temple and Jerusalem as they knew it, not the end of the world. Now, verse 3, as Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, opposite the valley to the temple, they're up on a valley looking down at the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, when will these things happen? When is it going to happen? And what's the sign What will be the sign that they're all about to be fulfilled? How will we know when this is going to come? Pause again. If you've been in Mark with us for the past year, what do they sound like right there? What's the echo you hear in your ear? Isn't that the question of the Pharisees? Show us a sign. Isn't Mark trying to locate the disciples for us in a posture of opposition to Jesus? He totally is. Notice, Jesus for two chapters, for several days, has been condemning the temple. And then on the way, I mean, if you're listening to Jesus, right, you're walking out of Jerusalem and you're like, man, that temple looks great, but whoo-wee, it doesn't even matter what it looks like. It's all corrupted, if you had been listening to Jesus. Instead, they're walking out and they say, oh, man, look at how awesome it is. So Mark tells us the disciples didn't get it. And then here, they sound just like the Pharisees. They say, that's scary. When's it going to happen? What's the sign we need to see? Jesus said to them, verse 5, watch out, be careful, blepo, look, see, see to it that nobody deceives you. Many are going to come in my name claiming I am. I am he, 
and they will deceive many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Not when you hear of war and rumors of wars, then you should be panicked. Oh boy, I see those in the Bible. I'm worried. He doesn't say that. He says, when you hear about wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Such things must happen. Be, the end is still to come. Parentheses. It's not the end right now. The end is yet to come. Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are just the beginning of birth pains. You, you must be on your guard of yourselves. If you're reading in the NIV, it just says on your guard, period. This is a reflexive verb, so it's a, the sense is not just to look, it's to you yourself look, or you look at yourself. He wants you to reflect that vision on, pay attention to what you're doing in the midst of great suffering and chaos, okay? So you must be on guard of yourselves, and you will be handed over to the local councils, and you'll be flogged in the synagogues. On account of me, you'll stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them. Why? Well, the gospel must first be preached to all the nations. Whenever you're arrested and you're brought to trial... Just feel what that would feel like, right? You're arrested and you're brought to trial. Do not worry. <laughs> you're like, mm -hmm. I'm going to get arrested and brought to trial on my basis of belief in Jesus with the threat of death, and don't worry about that. That's pretty dramatic, right? Don't be alarmed. Don't worry. Why don't worry? Don't worry beforehand about what to say. Just say whatever's given to you at the time, for it's not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. You don't worry about it because the Holy Spirit's with you, literally speaking through you. Verse 12, brother will betray brother to death, and father will betray his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. Everyone will hate you because of me, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved, or the one who endures. Verse 14, when you see the abomination that causes desolation, standing where it does not belong. Reader, pay attention. That's Mark's little parentheses. Pay attention, people. No sleeping. Then, he says, when you see the abomination that causes desolation, when you see that, then run. <laughs> Flee. Those who are in Judea, get to the mountains. Don't let anybody on the housetop go down or enter the house to take anything out. Leave the photo albums. Let no one who's out in the field go back to get their cloak. How dreadful it's going to be in those days for pregnant women and nursing moms. Pray that this doesn't take place in winter. Interesting. They said, when's it going to happen? Jesus is admitting, I don't know when this is coming. I know it's coming. But pray. Hope it doesn't happen in winter. Because that would be gnarly. Because those days of distress will be unequaled from the beginning, when God created the world until now, and they'll never be equaled again. If the Lord, verse 20, if the Lord had not cut short those days, nobody would survive, but for the sake of His chosen people, the elect, He has shortened those days. 
And at that time, if anybody says to you, look, look, here's the Savior. Look, here's what you need. Here's the Messiah. Look, there it is. Don't believe it. For false messiahs and prophets will appear and perform signs and wonders, and they will deceive, even if possible, the elect. So be on your guard. Look out for yourselves. I have told you everything ahead of time. That closing thought is, I'm telling you this ahead of time so that you don't fall into the fray and into the common thinking, which is to be alarmed. Oh my goodness, this is shocking, a new current event. He says, no, don't be alarmed by that. Now, we can't miss and we can't deny that this is about the temple, right? It's the buildings of Jerusalem and the people of Judea. Jesus is answering the disciples' question, when will this city and this temple be destroyed? And he is saying that when it happens, when that's happening, you should get out of Dodge ASAP. Roll with it. Don't think about anything else. Just run. Get out of Jerusalem when you see the destruction of Jerusalem starting. That's pretty good advice. (laughs) You know. If you see Portland collapsing in hellfire and doom, get out. Okay, that's good. He's super smart. It's more than that, though. Even though he's talking about a very specific scenario in a specific location, we can draw some principles from it. Principles just like if you were reading, for instance, the Noah story. The story of Noah is about a man looking at a very specific flood in a very specific place. So it's not really to us, and yet we see a principle in the instructions to Noah and his response that are helpful. He listens to God and he follows him even in the midst of what looks like a really dumb instruction, okay? There's a principle we draw. And I think there's a principle we can draw today from this one. I want to suggest that when we miss this specific thing, we end up reading the passage in a way that is not very helpful. And some of us have developed a a habit of Bible reading that actually ends up hurting us more than it helps us. It's really important to learn how to read the Bible rather than just open it up and start reading whatever and drawing conclusions. However you would describe this, it's some kind of impulse inside of us that would cause us to jump straight to verse 14 and then just focus on verse 14. And we start to say, abomination of desolation. Boy, that sounds cryptic and weird like a monster. Abomination of desolation. That sounds a little bit like Obama and nation. Obama. Oh, man. When he got elected, was I supposed to run up to Mount Hood? That's the closest mountain. I'm supposed to flee. Oh, no. And then what about the people in North Dakota? They don't even have mountains to flee to. Nothing, you know. You kind of get into this real weird Bible interpretation type stuff. But remember, the opening of the story, he says, the temple and this city are going to end. They asked when, they asked for the sign, when's this all happening, how will he know, what's going to happen, and Jesus' first response does not satisfy their question at all, does it? Hey, when's this going to happen? Hey, watch out for yourselves. I was looking more for like a date, or at least the fall or winter or something, you know. He says, watch out for yourselves. Why does he say that? Well, we mentioned, it sounds like the Pharisees. And they've already suggested by their enthusiasm for the beautiful physical glory of the temple that they haven't been listening to Jesus. 
And so right off the bat, he can sense these are some guys that are struggling in that place that makes them very susceptible to false messiahs. They're afraid. And so his first response to them is, hey, be careful. I can tell by what you're asking me that you're sitting in a place of fear and terror. So first thing I'm going to say to you is watch out. Because you're going to want to go grappling for anybody that promises you safety, security, and they promise that you're not going to lose anything. They're going to say that to you. And it's going to feel really good. And you're going to want to go that direction. But don't. It's almost like he's saying, hold on. I can tell where you're at, and you're in a vulnerable spot. The spot is spinning your instincts into a state of chaos. And in that state, your instincts drive you, and you get spun. Watch out that nobody misleads you. Misleads you how, specifically? We've talked about this already. Now let's hone it in. By pointing to the very common realities of natural disasters and war, people can make you think that this is the end of all time, the time of great loss, right? And in that moment, they can point to it and say, oh man, stir your fear up and then say, come to me. But in just a short while, based on what we see happening, it's almost here. In just a short while, pay attention to me. They'll sound the alarms. This is it. This is it. Just think of the destruction, the casualties. It's going to be the worst. But here's Jesus telling him, I'm telling you to not be alarmed. Because these things must happen. They are not a signal of loss. This is a creative destruction. And yes, it's going to hurt like crazy. But this is just the beginning of something very, very beautiful. Consider the birth pains that a woman goes through before new life arrives. It's like that. It's like that. Some ladies in the room are like, oh. And the dudes in the room are like, yeah. We'll come to that in a second. Now, some of you, I think, are probably sitting here and you're saying, wait a minute, Pastor. I don't know about this. That's not how I read this passage. I haven't heard it preached this way. I haven't not read this passage that way. Where are you coming up with this? Look, first I want to consider just regular history, and then I want to take you to the structure of this text. Just consider regular, real history. They ask for a sign, okay? And Jesus says, There's gonna be, you're going to hear about wars and rumors of wars. Is he saying to them, when you see war and you hear people chatting about war, that's a sign. That's like saying when the sun rises in the east, then you'll know, right? This is a nation who has experienced perpetual war throughout its entire history. Constant devastation and attack, leveling. They have ravaged and sacked a city how many times? Exiles, enslavements, you know? Like, when you see a war. No, he's not saying when you see a war, then that's the end. He's saying people are going to look at the war, which is extremely common, and they're going to say, now you know it's almost here. What about earthquakes? Since the fall, the earth has been groaning under the corruption of sin. But my guess is that when Hurricane Harvey hit, if you're, 
You, you watch this thing come, and it's the biggest in recorded history. You're like, whoa, this is, this is abnormal. This is dangerous and bad. It really is a sign. And then Irma came right after, and you're like, wait a minute. Boom, boom, double whammy. And there's like two more coming. I think there's another one hitting now. And then after that, the gorge is on fire, and then you hear that there's nine fires in Oregon, and then you hear that this is happening, and then the Mexican earthquake hits, and you're like, whoa. This is, I think, I did. Who didn't? Who among us didn't look at all that destruction and say, whoa, this is a big deal? You know, the truth is 2017 is actually a pretty sweet year for natural disasters. It's actually pretty low. You just do a cursory glance at the history of earthquakes in the last 2,000 years. You'll see that we're averaging about 15, 7.0 or higher earthquakes per year on the planet. Some days it's higher, some days it's, or some, some uh, you know, years it's higher and lower. But by and large, it's just an average flow of an earthquake-ridden world. I remember being in Israel in February, and they're explaining to us what a tell is. You think of the city Tel Aviv. A tell is a city built upon another city. We're sitting at the place, the valley, which will one day be Armageddon, okay, that's what they say. We're at the city ruins site, and you're looking at the ruins there, but there's this, this cut down through the dirt. You can see like 20-some civilizations piled one right on top of each other. And the, and the um, archaeologist is sitting there saying, yeah, the first one was ravaged by war. This one was a huge earthquake. This one was another earthquake. Each civilization died from either wars or earthquakes. They don't get a bunch of hurricanes in Israel, okay? But that's just how it is. It's always been these kinds of earthquakes. Consider just the top 10 in the last 2,000 years. In 138 AD, there's an 8.5 earthquake. Kills 230,000 people in October. 2004, this is in our lifetime, a 9.3 kills about the same amount of people in India 13 years ago. Over 230,000 dead. December of 1920, 230 plus thousand people dead in China. 1976, some of you might remember this, 242,000 dead in China on an on a earthquake with a Richter scale of eight. 526 AD, this is in Antioch, just a couple hundred years after Paul planted the church. Antioch has a huge earthquake in which 250 to 300,000 people die. In 1839, there's an India cyclone, it's called, a 40-foot wall of water. This ceiling is 33 feet. A wall of water 40 feet high crushes 300,000 people on land and drowns 20,000 out in the water. 1970, the Bola cyclone in West Bengal, 500,000 people killed. This month, 220 years ago exactly, in 1887, the Yellow River flood in China leaves millions homeless. It kills two million human beings. China again in 1931. That's less than 100 years ago. You woke up in the morning and saw the headlines that a series of floods had killed 3.7 million human beings. One natural disaster. That's the state of Oregon's population. That's about 100 years ago, not quite. 
And I guarantee if you had read the newspaper back then in 1931, you would have seen the death toll statistics, you would have seen the images, and you would have thought, like everybody, is this the end? It's one of the greatest natural catastrophes in the history that we have recorded. It's massive, and it just conjures up that kind of thinking. I mentioned Antioch in 528 AD. That was a 300,000 person loss. 68 years before that, there was another earthquake that hit the same exact city, killed 80,000. And 100 years prior to that, another earthquake hit the same exact city, killed 40,000. Now, if you're in there in 528, and you're waking up in the morning after that earthquake hits, if there were headlines, what would they say? Antioch experienced one, two, three. The numbers are worse, worse, worse. It's getting worse. Is this the end? Jesus is pointing to one of the most common parts of a broken world and saying, don't let people freak you out about this and and make you sort of believe that you should listen to their information and do their rules to help make yourselves better. I'm confident that just like today, many back in those days were crying out, is this it? This is very unusual, and it's very dramatic, and it's very important. Pay close attention to the pain and the fear and the suffering. That's what you need to look at because it's really bad, and it's really scary, and you need to think about it a lot because the more you think about that pain and suffering, the more you talk about it, the better off you're going to be. And and buy this product. It's going to help you. You need the news app. It'll keep you up to speed. Listen to the channel. It will give you the information that you need. Don't worry about paying attention to your Bible or your neighbors or living together well in the church. Now's not the time for that. You need to watch the news and talk about it. It's really, really important because this is all so dramatic. They would have wanted you to join in their own fear. They say that misery loves company. I would say that fear loves company too. Isn't that Chicken Little? Chicken Little couldn't just sit on his coop and watch the sky fall. The sky's falling. i got to get out and tell everybody. I'm scared of the sky falling, so I want everybody else to be afraid with me. But Jesus says, when you see the stuff coming down the line of history, don't panic. Do not be alarmed. And don't be misled by people who claim that they can help you. They can't because they're not the Christos. They're not the real Messiah. I am. One of the local talk radio shows around here always says, when breaking news happens, we're there, so you don't miss a thing. That's a messianic voice in your life, claiming to be able to help you stay in control. You're in control. We just report, you decide. You're in control. Let me help you feel like you are. If you have this information, you'll be good. What are the other messianic voices in our day? Listen to Zuckerberg on one of his keynotes. Technology. If you pour yourself into this technology, if you give your life over to it, it can ultimately save us from the wreckage in this world. Steve Jobs, if you own this product, the kinds of things that you fear losing, like relationships or social status, love, camaraderie, fellowship with people, you fear losing that. But if you own this product, then you won't lose that. Academia. Academia. If you memorize and repeat all of this information, 
the way that we've determined you should according to the tests that we ourselves have created, then your life is going to be better. You won't have to experience a big loss. You'll be safe and happy and secure if you pass the tests that we wrote. Okay. So even though we can see that this is about the fall of Jerusalem and the temple, there's a principle there that we can really follow. It's not, we're not looking at the temple falling. That's not on our minds. But we can see that he's saying in the midst of great pain and suffering, in the midst of what looks like the end of the world, it's not that. Stay with me and you're going to be super prone to fall toward these other directions, but don't. Be thou my vision. Jesus, be my vision, not be all else to me, meaning don't let anything else be to me a saving force except for you. You are the one. You're the Savior. Hear the voice of your Creator, not the false messianic voices of our day. And what does the Savior, what does the real Messiah say to us? Mark actually shows us this, I think, by the way that he structures this passage. He emphasizes the main point. He's written in these 23 verses, we're going to do a little Bible lesson right now. He's written what we call a chiasm. Anybody, you guys know what a chiasm is? This is cool. It's a way to write that helps readers like you and me be able to look through what's, you read this and you're just like, oh, this is weird. What's the main point? What is he trying to get at? He structures it in a way that helps you do it. So, I want to do a little side lesson here. It won't take long. I'm going to read you a paragraph, and I want you to see if you can feel it. Colleen, don't put the slide up yet. I'm going to have a slide come up in a second. But just see if you can feel this, and then I would instruct you, if you could, to go out today and reread through Mark 1 through 23, and you'll see it. I'll show you what I mean in a second. But try to feel in this paragraph what is the emphasis point, okay? Here we go. Baseball is the best because it has beautiful stadiums, good popcorn, and goofy superstitions about goats. But some do not like baseball. So you need to own it. And you need to want to become a great player. Football and hockey players do not like baseball. But there's nothing cooler than baseball with its sharp coaches and shouting fans and Chicago Cubs. Okay? Did you feel kind of a repeated idea on the beginning and back end? And then another one? Go ahead and put that slide up. See? There's two ideas, and then the green are two other ideas. The emphasis point is right in the middle of the text. Biblical writers like to do this a lot. Let's advance to the next one, Colleen. This is our text, verses 5 through 23. And notice how you see the same kinds of ideas. There's going to be messiahs that are leading people astray. And then down there, if people say, hey, look, there's the messiah. Look, there he is, you see. Then the green, which are where we often focus, which is the wars and the earthquakes and whatnot, he talks about all this kinds of destruction that's happening. Then 9 through 13, I'm suggesting to you, are what Jesus is really saying to us in principle it's the main emphasis point of the text. Go ahead, Colleen, to the next one. I've summarized these. Here's how this passage reads. You have the appearance of false messiahs that bookend it. 
He talks and warns about coming wars and natural disasters, but in the middle is where he gives the mission. This is what I want you to be doing in this context. Disciples of Christ are not supposed to worry about what they cannot control. Jesus himself doesn't. You and I must concentrate, according to verse 9, on preparing ourselves or watching over yourself. In the New English translation, they actually reflect that reflexive voice. You keep watch over yourselves. So pay attention to how you're living in this sin-broken world. Everyone wants to say, oh no, the sky is falling. Here's the signs. We see the signs. It's right down in Texas right now. But you will be wise to avoid that banter. And, and, and that, that fear that pervasively weaves itself through every single generation. Stop fretting about what's beyond your control. I alone am the Messiah. And your mission doesn't stop. You see it? He's talking about you're going to be in the most dire, he gives us the most dire circumstance. And he's saying even when you're facing death because of me, stay the course persevere. That is what true life is. Being on mission with me, living the gospel out in this world, there's where your salvation lies. It's in me, not in all this other stuff. Don't get pulled away. Let me be your vision. A world so hostile and so chaotic is filled with analogies and metaphors that Jesus could use. Okay? There's a lot of them. And yet, what does Jesus use as a metaphor to teach us about what we are going through right now in this world? Birth pains. You ever stop and ponder that for a moment? Jesus, out of all that he could choose to try to wake us up and teach us about what we're going through right now, he uses a metaphor that only a woman could understand for real. At our home community this past Thursday, we talked about this. We realized there's no way for us in the church to learn the depth of Jesus' teaching here if we're not taught by a woman, if we're not actually educated on what birth pains are like, okay? I think it's kind of funny to think about it. I mean, you can listen to me talk about it a little bit, but it's like, yeah, birth pains are really brutal, and then when they get super intense, then... You can kind of slide in those little booties down the hallway and get some instant coffee and wait for her to finish delivering the baby. They don't want you in the delivery room anyway. And then you can go back in. So maybe he's talking about like having to drink instant coffee from a machine. It's that bad, you know. I think that's what I'm going to teach. But I actually, we talked about this in our home community group on Thursday night. And it, the way that Julie, uh, who hosts our home community, she's one of our hosts, Julie Zeller's talked about this. And Julie, I'd like you to come up if you would. And I would like Julie to share with you the same things that she shared on Thursday, which for me, I was like, whoa, this really clicks. So here's Julie. Welcome her up, please. Thank you, Julie. All right. The first, I have three questions. The first one is that um, this metaphor that he uses struck you in a particular way. Why did it specifically grab you? What was it, or basically, what was the basic gist of why it captivated your mind? Um, because uh, birth is like the most intense physical pain I've ever experienced in my entire life. 
for sure. There's nothing more severe and all-consuming than going through labor. Doesn't even come close. So in that moment where it's the most uniquely severe pain, give us the specifics of kind of what's going on in your heart and mind as best you can. stronger and stronger and then it just is completely blinding. I cannot think about what's for dinner next week. I'm not thinking about a conversation I had yesterday. I'm not thinking about what I want to do with my walls in my home in a year. I just, (laughs) all I can think about is getting through this contraction that I'm experiencing right now. It's just there's, There's no ability to focus. That was one of the things that grabbed me on Thursday. She continued to talk about this for several minutes, and it's just like I am unable to see a way out of it. I'm just locked into the moment. So then the last question is, you see Jesus using this metaphor, and as you read this passage, as one who has given birth and experienced those birth pains, how do, what are some of the ways you interpret it in the context? Yeah. Um, well, first, I just was so struck that he uses a birth pain, which is a beginning and not an end. In the middle of it, it feels like the end. It feels like I am going to die. My body is gonna burst into 10,000 pieces or cave in on itself or something. I'm not gonna make it through this. Um, But in those brief moments between contractions, maybe I can for a second think about I'm gonna hold a baby in maybe an hour or maybe like 24 hours. (laughs) We don't know when the time is, do we? Yeah, we don't know when it's coming, but I know that there is a purpose to this, that it is natural. I had a really severe blood clot in my leg at the very, very beginning of my pregnancy, and it was a really, really, it was a different kind of pain, and it was really awful, and it in some ways was worse than a birth pain because it was unnatural. I couldn't breathe through it and know that there was something positive coming at the end of it, but in the middle of a contraction, if I can engage with it and breathe, through it, um, then I know that there's something good coming at the end of it, um, and also that I can only I can only work through this contraction that I'm experiencing right now. If I try to get out of it, if I try to think about how many more are coming, mm-hmm. it's infinitely worse than if I just engage and work with my body through this contraction that I'm experiencing. And right with now. the blood clot thing, I think you talked about trying to stop it or focus on this one thing, when you try to actually avoid it or stop it, you've talked about that. Yeah, if I try to fight it, if I try to, like, get out of it or think about anything else or try to think about, um, yeah, just anything that can get me out of it, if I try to um, it just gets worse. it, it just gets absolutely worse than if I just relax and choose to accept it, choose to engage with the pain that I'm experiencing. Okay. Thank you very much, Julie. I appreciate that. I gave Julie like a 12-hour heads up on doing that, so thank you. But you see where she's, I mean, the way that she talked about that, it's so blinding. If I try to fight it, and this is the language of Jesus, isn't it? This is the beginning. It's not out of control. God is, this is part of what must happen is how he talks about it. We talked that this was the fall of Jerusalem. Some 30 years after Jesus made this prophecy, it was fulfilled. 
it was totally fulfilled. A soon-to-be Emperor Titus, of, uh, Emperor of Rome, came in 70 AD, and he laid siege to Judea, and specifically Jerusalem. This is the, what the abomination of desolation is referring to in this text. It's not some cryptic monster that we can kind of fill in with whoever we don't like the most. It's, it's biblical language for when somebody is ruling in a place where they shouldn't be. So in 586 B.C., when, Bab- when Babylon shot down Jerusalem, that was also the abomination of desolation or the incarnation of evil, if you will, or the manifestation of the dark evil in this world. So all he is saying in verse 14 is, when you see somebody taking rulership over the city that shouldn't be, parentheses, Titus from Rome, when you see that happening, boogie, get out. And why? Well, when this happened, all of the people who were out in the countryside of Judea thought, what? We need to be safe. And so they crammed into the city behind the walls. People who had listened to Jesus would be the only ones who survived this. This is one of the most grim, gut-turning sieges in human history. Rome is coming, people thought, get behind the walls for protection. They crowded in from the countryside into the main city, and then Titus cut them off. This isn't Titus in the Bible. This is Titus, the Roman, bad Roman, bad guy. He cut them off and starved them out. 1.1 million Jews perished by starvation and the sword in 70 AD. 97,000 were taken captive. Here's what Josephus wrote. Josephus wrote this in 75 AD, five years after. He said, Then did the famine widen its progress, and it devoured the people by whole houses and families. Their upper rooms were full of women and children dying of starvation. The lanes of the city were full of dead bodies of the aged. The children and the young men wandered about the marketplaces like shadows, all swelled with famine, and they fell down dead wheresoever their misery seized them. As for burying them, those that were sick themselves were not able to bury the dead, and those who were hardy and well were deterred by the great multitude of the dead and the uncertainty when they would die themselves, for many died while they were burying the dead. And many went to their own coffins before the fatal hour. There was no lamentation uttered under these calamities. The famine confounded all natural passions, and a deep silence of deadly night had seized upon the city. That was written in 75 AD, reflecting back on what Jesus said was coming. Josephus, he goes on and on. He talks about ghouls um, pillaging the dead bodies, people driven to search tirelessly through sewage and dung heaps, eating it for some semblance of nutrition. One woman roasting her own child and serving it to the neighbors who were starving to death. It was utter, absolute darkness that befell the city and literally laid waste all of it. And this is what Jesus was talking about. When you see this starting, then leave to the... The only people who survived the siege of Jerusalem were those who fled to the hills. So we know that. That was what this passage is talking about. So where does it leave us today? We know that Jesus' prediction of what was going to happen did happen, and it, it raises our esteem for him. 
He's not a fake guy making crap up. He's for real. He knew it was coming and he gave his disciples fair warning. But we learn something much deeper and here's where we'll close today. We learn something deeper and it can change the way that you and I live in this world today. We learn that the stress and the worry and the anxiety about the future have no place in the life of a Christian. It is unbecoming of men and women who are claiming to be anchored into the lifeblood of Jesus Christ himself, the indestructible one and the king of an eternal kingdom. What business do we have getting caught up into the, into the fray of anxiety and worry? We don't. Do not be alarmed about the normal corruptions of this world. These destructions are not about losing something valuable. These must happen. They are destructions that lead to the creation of new life, like the pain somebody goes through when she's giving birth to new life. And I am telling you of this so you know what to expect in general. In a world filled with pain and misery and war and rumors of wars and earthquakes and Harveys and Irmas and on and on, the way to experience true life is to let me, Jesus, be your vision. Rather than letting the newscasters and bloggers and even some religious leaders pull you and say, look at me, they don't know Jack, says Jesus, but I do. And so keep watch over yourselves, meaning do the things I've said. Live at peace with one another. What an amazing beacon of hope to a world that's falling apart and imploding. When a group of believers remain at peace with one another, they don't start infighting. They don't do what we always do in those hard circumstances. Be at peace. Trust that I know what I'm doing. Know that this pain is going to blind you and cause you to want to turn to any number of distractions or comforts. But don't. Those are deceptions. I alone can offer you safety and life. I alone am what you need. And at the end of this intense, blinding pain, there will be a full creation, a recreation of new life. This is just the start. Pray with me. Jesus, would you please help us to not be men and women of alarm, but instead a community of trust. Would you help us to shed those impulsive, reactive sort of behaviors that we all do, like I did, when we see destruction and the fear of losing something valuable and instead anchor our heart and soul, our vision for life right into you. Help us to see that you knew everything and, and yet we're not afraid. You knew of the destruction coming and you didn't tell us to get worried. Help us to really hear you today. Help us to become faithful, trusting, and loving so that our heart and our mind and our soul and our strength is all committed to you and not other things. We love you. Amen.